Hello, everyone. Welcome to Spin Radio, your guide to understanding the trends, tools, and techniques to help your business thrive in the fast-moving landscape of digital and web. I'm Michael Reynolds. And I'm Allison Gibbs. Spin Radio is brought to you by SpinWeb. We are located on the web at spinweb.net. We're an agency here in the lovely city of Indianapolis. And we're happy to be here today. At least I am. Are you happy to be here today, Allison? I am always happy to be here. Always? Always. Every single time? Every single time. Literally every single time. Literally. Literally. Like Chris Traeger. <laughs> I kind of believe you because we always have a good time. time with this. So Yeah. Glad to hear it. We have a great show for you today. A little shorter show for you today. You're welcome for those who like short podcasts. We have uh, one weekly roundup item uh, specifically about... Facebook and something they are doing to shut down divisive messages. I can't wait to hear all about this. I'm sure Allison has some juicy commentary on this. Yep, we're going to talk about some politics yeah. as it relates to that because <laughs> that probably shocks no one. Shocks no one. And then our main topic today is the early adopter factor and leapfrogging your competitors. Uh, less tactical today and a little more, I guess, uh, I don't know, thoughtful. Um, just kind of observational, conceptual. I'm just making up words. Strategic. Strategic. I guess you could say strategic. High level. Get some strategery to share. High level. So so that's our show for today. And Nathan is always running the board. Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate that. He gets our music uh, at the right level and off and on at the right spot. So we appreciate that. All right, let's get started. Weekly Roundup. So Facebook suspends over 80 pages, groups, and accounts for spreading divisive messages. Wow. What's going on? Yeah. So this happened. Tell me more. (laughs) Okay, Michael. I will (laughs) tell you more. Um, So this happened a couple of weeks ago, or this was announced a couple of weeks ago, I guess I should say. So it it was just about two weeks before our most recent election. And so Facebook said that they have suspended 82 pages, groups, and accounts and they have said that they originated in Iran and they have been suspended because, and this is a quote, they have been engaging in coordinated, inauthentic behavior and they have been sharing divisive political messages. And it seems to be as if most of them would be considered as if it were language that is in opposition to the current administration. And so for those of you who are keeping track, this is yet another instance of of um, what would be considered foreign interference within social media Foreign actors to uh, I was like, like, bad actors of foreign actors, right, to change the um, to basically get involved in the political system within the United States to alter the course of history, alter the course of history. So. One thing that, um, oh, another thing, they, some of the accounts were also on Instagram. So it wasn't just with Facebook. They also took down Instagram as well. And that they do not appear to have clear ties to the Iranian government. Um, but, and they, oh, and Facebook said that they cannot say for certain who is behind it. So to be clear, they know that it originated in Iran. They don't know who was behind it. So they, and I doubt that they'll ever give any specifics on that anyway. Um, because I think the more specific they get about this, then I think more of a target they become. Um, however, uh, they said that more than 1 million Facebook users followed at least one of the pages that the company removed. So wow. 
that's a lot when you think about, I mean, it's not a lot in the, the scheme of the world, obviously, but I mean, that's a, I think mean, that's pretty influential, I think. Well, it's a lot of people who then also have their own networks to influence. Correct. So the, the ripple effect is Bingo. Uh, is real. <laughs> Bingo. And all of these are designed to trigger an emotional reaction in users. So that way it gets them to to share things. And of course, we're all the way that Facebook has designed itself is for us to be in an echo chamber and for us to kind of, you know, for for those feelings to fester and whatnot, I think we're all kind of guilty of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you fall on. I think everybody is is um, kind of they have their digital platforms curated in such a way by design that it's just that, that that's the way it's happening. So then that causes it to just spread from there. Um, they the most popular account was called Wake Up America. And it, that was the one that shared images and shared memes and whatnot that was in, incredibly um, critical of the current administration. And so it it took everything into account from um, race, immigration, the Supreme Court justice hearings, everything from that angle. Um, and then they... the. So first off, Facebook has a head of cybersecurity policy, which I don't know why I'm laughing at that, but that's good. Um, So they have a head of cybersecurity policy. His name is Nathaniel Gleicher, and that he has made it abundantly clear that nobody that Facebook will not comment on the motivation of what they were trying to do, what their end goal was, because honestly, I don't know if they could actually say what the end goal was, um, but that it that he described it. And this is his quote as a smart, well-funded adversaries who will never give up and constantly change tactics was basically what he said. This was an example of that. Uh, so this was, which I will say, I think that this proves that Facebook, the fact that they took action and that they took action leading up to the election, they didn't wait until after, that they are keeping a close watch on this and they are keeping a close eye on it. And the fact that they took down 80 accounts, which all seem to be kind of coordinated together um, between the pages, the actual accounts and the groups that they are paying attention. And they're also not just shutting down things. I think right away um, that they're taking thoughtful, careful action before they actually say they're going to shut something down. Actually reassures me. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that this bodes well for both us as personal users of Facebook. Um, I know Facebook is getting a an insanely bad rap right now, and I still think that they have a lot of work to go when it comes to um, how abuse spreads on the platform and whatnot. Uh, however, this is I think they're making steps in the right direction, and so for obviously we all remember the fact that there that that. Um, the Russian interference with Facebook. We know that uh, Russia's internet research agency is, is, is what it was called um, that they feel as if uh, that the Iranian operation learned from the Russian operation and basically tried to put the same thing into place. Kind of a high level. Uh, Facebook also said that they did share the information with count with its counterparts. And that did include Google and Twitter. Twitter said that they removed uh that they removed accounts based on the information that Facebook supplied, but there's no other, no further details in regards to that. And that a, um, a spokesperson for Google did not respond for the request for comment when this 
particular article was published. So Twitter seems to have uh, have deleted accounts based on the information that Facebook supplied. So that to me lead, leads me to believe that the information that Facebook is gathering about this information, that how they're giving it to, or about the, the instance, uh, is credible enough across multiple platforms that are obviously, I mean, every, all of these are publicly shared and whatnot, that, that if they're shutting down operations and they're shutting down accounts as well, that this is probably pretty credible information from Facebook. Um, I know people, some, some people have a huge trust issue with Facebook right now, which I get, I get to be very clear. I still know people that don't even I have Facebook that. accounts. That's okay. I which mean, is fine. That's, thing. that's fine. You know, yeah. That's, fine. that's totally, if, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. That's <laughs> completely fine. I have no problem with that. Um, and then the other, I, the other thing, there was one other item about this. Um, I can't remember. I can't find it now. I can't find this. There was one more stat that I was trying to find. It'll come back to me later. Um, so anyways, so this has happened within the last couple of weeks. It led up to the, uh, to the election. And I don't think that this is the last that we've heard of anything like this. Uh, I certainly think that um, I think Facebook learned its lesson from 2016 and I think that it certainly is learning a lesson from the fallout with Cambridge Analytica. And I think that we will probably see more of this type of stuff. But the fact that they're keeping a close watch on it and that they are taking action, I think, bodes well for the integrity of the platform, which is what they're trying to do, because obviously they need the platform to make money. So yeah. Yeah, it's um, in their interest to make it in their useful interest to, to make both it people useful. and businesses. <laughs> Correct. So if people are scared out there that people are going to just like fly away from Facebook, I don't think it's going to happen. I've said that several times now, like they're just not going to, it's just not going to happen. Well, I think um, to me, Facebook is just as established now as email, like or it's getting there. I mean, it's, it's rare that you find someone who doesn't use email unless they're like just weird. <laughs> like yeah. pretty much everyone has email. And I think we're to the point where Facebook is a standardized communication platform, just like email. So it's pretty ingrained in our society. Like, it'd be very difficult for it to just, like, disappear. At least with a specific generation. So... Yeah, it's, I guess time will tell if the earlier generations phase it out. Yeah, so, which I think is natural. Or, I'm sorry, the, the most recent generations. The yeah. younger generation. Which I think is natural that we, that generationally our communication habits evolve with the technology that's available to us. And so... I certainly don't think that with a specific generation right now that it's going to just totally go away now. Yeah. Cause look at email. I mean, will, how long has email been around and people keep saying email is dying and here we are with email. Right. Email is still your number one sign on mechanism for right. most sites. Now will my children ever be on Facebook? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I'm will tell. Interesting. Thank you. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for, no, no, thank you. Thanks for indulging me. <laughs> <in> my... <laughs> My lovely little political talk. You know, I so, love this. I know, indeed. Um, so our main topic for today is, like I said, more of a, just a conversation, maybe a quick conversation, but I was thinking earlier this week, and we were kind of brainstorming about uh, what we wanted to discuss this week on the show, and I kind of wanted to talk about just this concept of being an early adopter, and or not, and how that affects your competitive advantage, and how you can react and potentially leapfrog your competitors. And what I mean by that is, I, I guess, would you agree? I mean, you know, like I said, I want to make this a conversation, Allison. So would you agree that 
maybe many, if not most, businesses are fairly risk-averse and are probably not what you'd call early adopters. 100%, yes. Maybe smaller businesses are the exception, but the bigger the the organization is, even if you get to like 20, 30, 100 people, like you're not going to be bleeding edge. You're not going to be an early adopter. Typically, you're going to be a little more cautious, and it seems to be in our nature as organizations to to be cautious and and not jump on the bandwagon for things like and some examples of that are uh right now i mean we're going to talk about podcasting as an example uh blogging back in the day uh actually blogging still today um still people don't get it or or kind of buy into it i think video is a platform that is kind of in that early adopter stage for a lot of businesses that is kind of in a pivotal moment so so to me i was just thinking about how this is a fairly I don't want to say easy, but it's a fairly accessible competitive advantage that most businesses and nonprofits as well, organizations in general, don't take take advantage of. And a couple examples, and this kind of was brought up by Allison. You were telling me, I think it was earlier this week, you you were kind of researching some some content on our website, and you found an article that I guess I had written mm-hmm. back in 2011 mm-hmm. about podcasting. I did. Do you yes. remember what it said? I'm curious. I uh, don't even remember that article. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I guess I, I could Google it. Ben don't Webb, remember podcasting. the specific. Um, it, because all I think I think it was just how to start a podcast. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, I it's so it was just a how to article. Yeah, of how, how to, to start, start a, podcast. a podcast. So back then, I slash we whoever we were. I wasn't even here yet. Oh, you weren't. No, not oh, in okay. 2011. Yeah, I guess so. So we as an organization um, were at least someone here, you know, me or whoever was thinking about podcasting and thinking about how it seemed like a platform that would grow and grow and become very, very relevant very quickly. That quickly is relative. I guess seven years later, we don't, you know, I guess we can look at it that way. But um, we started podcasting pretty soon after that, I think. I think I, actually the first podcast we did here was called The Digital Exec, and I just interviewed you know CEOs and had conversations with them about marketing and strategy. I think last about three years, maybe? Yeah. Maybe, maybe two or three years. Yes. You and, started that right after I started in 2012. Yeah, that's right. So around 2012, we started a podcast, and we learned a lot from it, had a lot of fun, uh, went really well, and then we stopped doing that for a while, and then we started Spin Radio. And Spin Radio has been going for more than three years now. I think about three years-ish. Is that about right? That sounds about right. Yeah, three years-ish. Actually, a little more because we have 166 episodes now. So, yeah, over three years. And so knowing we've missed a few weeks, that pretty much adds up to about three years. So we've uh, we've been podcasting as an organization for five, six years. And in that time, we have learned a lot about podcasting. We've learned a lot about equipment, about format, about agenda, about topics, about uh, how you know how to include people and how to structure it, and you know how to display it on our website and how to publish it, how to promote it. We've learned a ton in those six years about podcasting, and I think everybody would agree that podcasting now is pretty much mainstream, and podcasting is really popular. It's only growing. We've talked about it many times on the show, so I don't really need to dig into stats, but the stats show that every single year, podcast listenership is growing, uh, podcast effectiveness is growing, uh, the influence podcasts have on people and their buying habits is growing. It's just growing. And so 
My point to say all that is that because we were an early adopter six years ago in learning a platform that was kind of new and scary and different and unusual, we are now expert podcasters. We've helped our clients with starting a podcast and they've seen results from it. We've made sales from our podcast. We have leads coming from our podcast and we are basically in this groove where we have this tactic that most other marketing agencies don't have and are still trying to figure out. And the same is really true of things like blogging as well. I mean, blogging, it has been around for, I want to say like 20 plus years in the marketing scene, in the business world, longer than that, actually, 25 years, maybe. And if you think about it, those who started blogging, you know, 20 years ago, like, I'm not sure if we started 20 years ago, but at least, you know, in that time, we've been blogging for over 10 years. And if you look at our website traffic, um, what's our, I mean, I don't mind sharing our stats. What's our current website traffic per month? It's like in the 30,000 plus range, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It's consistently over 30,000 sessions. Yeah. Which is huge. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, that's... Yeah, for, especially for a business of our size. Yeah. yeah. For, a, for a small business like us, um, that is phenomenal. And I would say a huge portion of that can be attributed to the fact that we have been blogging for like a decade. We were an early adopter. We learned how to do it effectively early on when other people weren't doing it and we got really good at it and we stayed consistent. And we continue to adapt with the... We do, yeah. With the trends and with the market. Yeah. So in general, my thought process really is this, is more of a question which I think I know the answer to. It's obviously a biased question, but is being an early adopter an advantage when it comes to your marketing competitiveness with your in your market? And I think it is. I mean, would you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. But the question becomes, in uh, within cultures that might be more risk averse, how do they get to the point where they feel like they can be an early adopter comfortably and take that risk? Well, what it comes do you- down to people. It comes down to culture. I think. I think. I think organizations have a culture of innovation, and sometimes they just don't. Is that too bold to say? No, not at all. <laughs> Not I mean, all. and you would think marketing agencies are a culture of innovation, but still, I mean, most of the marketing agencies are not podcasting and some of them don't even blog very well. And so having a culture of innovation, I think, is is key to this. And so I guess my point is that the teaching point I want to make here is that if you are listening to this and you are an organization that is struggling to find a competitive advantage, is struggling to find a way to... Uh, exceed your your competitors and really see good traction moving forward and and growth. There are many things you can do, but one of them is to adopt a culture of innovation and become an early adopter. Um, say yes to things like, hey, let's start a podcast, even though it sounds scary. Hey, yes, let's blog consistently, even though we don't really understand it. Let's figure it out. Hey, yes, let's start doing video because five years down the road, video is going to be much more mainstream and accessible. And if we start doing it now, we will have built up expertise and content in video. I mean, there are plenty of other tactics that you could probably think of. I mean, it could be social platforms. It could be um, AI. It could be anything. But to me, being an early adopter, it means you have an advantage because most other organizations are not early adopters. So that's basically what I had today. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's terribly useful, but it was kind of something I've been thinking about lately. Well, here's what I would say from my angle. Everybody is so focused on ROI. And oh, they yeah. want to, they, everybody wants to see everybody else's results first before they take the leap of faith. And so I think if you have an idea 
that is different that you feel like you can flesh out and that you can um, that you can implement that would set you apart from your competitors, but there's no data to prove that it's going to be the best, then you're never going to know unless you try. So a lot of the, honestly, some of of how we've gotten to the 30,000 sessions is just because I, on a whim, decided to take a different direction with some of our content pieces that we wouldn't have normally taken. And so because we've done that, now we've seen the results that we have. But Michael also allows me to do that. So that's, um, he fosters that culture (laughs) of innovation and risk risk taking so well it's called it's innovation it is. and empowerment also it is 100 and so because i have because i've done that a couple of times i did that a couple of times now like I, I basically will just try anything because i we you don't know until you try and uh if we all sit around and wait for everybody else's results then somebody else we're just gonna be playing catch up the entire time and that's what's interesting is you're right. Everyone is so focused on, well, let's, we have to have proof it's going to work before we actually do it. Or we have to try it out and see if it's going to work and, and measure ROI and then we'll decide. And that seems to be the norm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like you've got the, I'm going to kind of stereotype the the situation we see a lot. So you've got the marketer who's probably innovative and wants to do cool things. And the marketer's boss is either a CEO or a board. And the CEO or board is saying, well, you know, we're not sure if we want to spend money on that strategy because we don't know if it's going to work. So Here's a little bit of budget. Try it out. Give us some ROI numbers, and then we'll decide if we're going to allow it or not. And the ROI numbers are usually not conclusive because you haven't really given it enough time. And then they they kill the whatever the t- strategy is or the campaign because the ROI isn't there, and you never get off the ground. And so, I mean, we're super data. We like data. As, as marketers, we're very into data. But I think we've talked about this before. It's not all about data. Sometimes it is about truly going with your inspiration and your innovative, you know, gut. And that causes you to have that competitive advantage. So yeah, so obviously a big soapbox of ours. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I've sure been is. thinking about this week. So thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts. So well, thank uh, you for sharing your thoughts. No, Michael. no, thank you for sharing your thoughts. <laughs> Sorry to wax philosophical today, but uh Anyway, so yeah, those who are listening who want to take a risk and want to fight for going beyond just the numbers and the data, um, looking back, we have proof that it does work. Again, we have proof that we had no idea how effective a podcast would be. There was no data. There were no numbers. There was no ROI. We had no idea. And it took us like six years to really get to the point where we're seeing leads from it. But guess what? Now we have this tool. Now we have these leads coming from it and other people don't. Um, It took us a lot longer than that to see the fruits of our, our content efforts. And here we are with you know, 30 plus thousand sessions per month on our website, which many people would just, you know, kill to have. So there's your proof right there as well. So, so leaders out there as well who have marketing people that are begging them to get budget and empowerment to try new things, give them that empowerment, give them that budget. Um, Maybe it'll take years, but maybe it'll pay off. So there you go. My story, I'm sticking to it. Let's talk about kittens now. Okay. Just think of something lighter. Kittens. (laughs) Kittens <laughs> are awesome. What's that, Nathan? It? Oh, yeah, the kitten slumber party. Oh, the cat pajama jam. Cat pajama jam. Yes, Nathan, bringing it back. Oh, I just thought about that image again. See, Nathan it's does so listen funny. to our podcast while he's sitting over there pushing buttons on the board. We thank you that. That's cool, Nathan. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about with the cat pajama jam, just kind of rewind a few episodes and 
you'll hear all about it. Gosh, all that, about that photo. God, it's so good. All right. So with that, what else is on your mind, Allison? Anything else you wanted to put a shout out for or wrap up with? Any shows coming up you want to announce? Uh, well, Mary Poppins at Civic Theater will be opening on December 7th. If you're in the Indy area. If you're in the Indianapolis area, yeah, central Indiana. Um, it's they. This is their holiday show. It's super fun. And yeah. And my husband is working on the sound. CivicTheater.org? CivicTheater.org, yes. Civic Theater spelled theatre. The right way, the yes. The right way, yes. <laughs> you have the dom- do you guys have the domain registered the other way too, just to forward? Um, You know, I can't That might be a good remember. idea just to catch a few of those uh, misspellings. I, well, I know that CivicTheater.com is owned by somebody else. Those jerks. I know, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah, no. Oh, but it's available for sale. Oh, I want to grab it for kicks okay cool anything from you nathan anything going on this week all right well thanks everybody i guess that uh, wraps our shorter show for today so uh as always thanks for joining us we appreciate you being a listener spin ready is brought to you by SpinWeb, a digital agency on the web at spinweb.net uh, website development and digital marketing solutions what we do give us a shout if we can help with any of those things send your comments or questions to radio at spinweb.net and again, thanks for joining us this week. Have a great day, and we will see you next time. 